Welcome to Your Brain On, a podcast about the neuroscience of everything. We're your hosts, Drs. Aisha and Dean Sherzai, and we've drummed up a story about what happens when we fall asleep and create stories that we often don't even fully remember when we wake up. Where do they come from? What influences them? Does our lifestyle turn them into nightmares? And can we be aware or lucid that they're happening? This is your brain on dreams. When you sleep, you cycle through several different sleep stages roughly every 90 minutes. Each of these stages are distinguished by unique physiological and neurological characteristics. The first stage of sleep is known as N1 or the light sleep phase. It usually only lasts a few minutes while you're drifting from wakefulness to slumber. Your brain waves electrical oscillations which signal neural activity slow down and you might experience a sensation of falling. Sometimes some people can feel a sudden involuntary muscle contraction during this stage called a hypnic jerk, which might sound like an insult, but is actually a phenomenon caused by certain muscle groups relaxing, particularly the ones responsible for holding you in an upright position and making your brain think you're falling. After N1 comes N2, your brain waves continue slowing down. There are short bursts of activity on EEG called the sleep spindles. These spindles play an important role in sensory processing and long-term memory consolidation. We'll explore this in more detail in another episode focused more broadly on sleep. Then comes N3, also called slow wave sleep. As the name suggests, brain waves slow down even further. This is when the body repairs and regrows tissue, builds bone and muscle, and strengthens the immune system. And most importantly, the brain cleanses itself during this stage. And finally, we arrive at the rapid eye movement or REM stage, the phase most associated with intense dreaming. Our brainwaves begin to mimic the activity seen during wakefulness, creating a unique paradox of a sleeping body, but with an active mind. REM sleep stimulates the brain's regions used in learning and is thought to be involved in the brain's processing and consolidation of experiences and memories. This is also when dreams start to unfold. If you get woken up from the REMS phase, you'll typically remember your dreams more vividly, much like how you can recall the details of a movie more clearly when you're walking out of the movie theater. Scientifically speaking, during REM, our prefrontal cortex, that's the part in charge, takes a backseat. This allows for less inhibited thought processes, fostering an environment where creative problem solving can emerge. This state of quote-unquote paralysis, known as REM atonia, is a safety mechanism. It keeps our body still while our brain rehearses scenarios, preventing us from physically acting out our dreams. The interplay of REM atonia and dreams empowers us to turn the things we learn into long-term knowledge by consolidating memories and nurture emotional regulation by simulating threats. During REM sleep, you produce more proteins like brain-derived neurotrophic factor and postsynaptic density protein 95, which by strengthening your neurons and synapses contribute to neuroplasticity. That's the brain's ability to flexibly adapt and readapt. Pair that with the way dreams reenact and process daily experiences without the constraints of logic and societal rules, and you're running a subconscious problem-solving workshop. 
When you say you're going to sleep on it in regards to a difficult decision, there's actual neuroscience backing you up. That's why dreams happen at a neurophysiological level. But how do the narratives of dreams get written? Which external stimuli make it into our subconscious scripts? Oneurologists or scientists who specialize in studying dreams might have different answers. Although dreams mostly occur during REM sleep, more recent studies show they can happen, albeit far more rarely, in lighter phases as well. During those lighter phases, we're most cognizant to external stimuli, which is why we might wake up to a sight or a sound in the real world and assume we were experiencing it in our dreams, when in truth, our brains are confusing the imagery we imagine in our dreams and the things we become conscious of as we wake up. Right. It's something you see depicted in film and TV a lot. For dramatic effect, that is. A character is talking to someone in a dream sequence, for example, then the person in their dreams start telling them to wake, wake up. up. Plot twist, they're stirred awake and someone is really saying wake up to them. This kind of a direct incorporation of external stimuli into our dreams is quite unlikely. More often than not, the overlap is coincidental. But it's a novel experience when it happens, so we remember it. And thus, the prevailing notion that it's a common phenomenon. And there's this other prevailing idea that dreams have meanings, but well, we're only human. We love simple answers to complex things. Parallels drawn between dreams and reality will never be a straight line. Come on, let's accept that. But one correlation we can be fairly confident in is dreams are most often a reflection of real world concerns that we all live with on a daily basis. When we're awake, we're concerned about our safety and well-being so naturally we'll have nightmares about being chased or getting injured. The stuff we're imagining when we're awake will often make it into our dreams. This is mirrored at a biological level because the networks that support our dreams when we sleep are largely the same systems that light up when we're dreaming during the day. When we daydream, that is, and let our minds drift away. When we are alert and focused, systems like the executive and attention networks responsible for sensing the world around us are in charge. But when we daydream, or when our imagination kicks in, these networks hand a degree of control over to the areas of the brain that process internal thoughts, like our sense of self or our place in this world. On neuroimaging, we can see that some of these parts of the brain also activate when we dream while sleeping. The connection between daydreaming and dreaming at night reflects how we handle real-life problems, as shown by the varied dreams across cultures. We had a fascinating conversation with renowned author Roger Kamenetz about this. Dreams are prehistoric in the sense that obviously people were dreaming for millennia before we had the ability to write down history. Roger has written extensively about dreams and consciousness. He noted that long before we tried to interpret ancient religious texts, we tried to interpret dreams. One of the earliest stories we have is that this shepherd king named Demuzi, who was a Sumerian god king, dreams that his sheep pen fell apart and the sheep ran away and he was ruined. And so he calls on his sister, Geshtanana, a Mesopotamian goddess associated with dream interpretation. 
who comes running to interpret the dream. And she tells him, unfortunately, uh, you're doomed. <laughs> you're basically, that's it. You know, you're not going to do very well. In a sense, the ego is the first dream interpreter. If someone causes us pain in a dream, we might react with rage. So then we're seeing that person as an enemy and a bad person. We all have feelings we don't want to feel. And dreams, being very pesky, will give us exactly those feelings we're trying not to feel, which is why I take them seriously. A very recent study published by the University of Geneva and University of Toronto in 2023 showed that research participants from forager communities in the Democratic Republic of Congo and Tanzania, where social bonds are comparatively stronger than those common in more individualistic Western societies, dreamt more frequently about other members of their communities, helping them with the life-threatening dangers they encountered in their nightmares. And speaking of dreams in the context of different cultures, visitation dreams, dreams in which you communicate with a deceased individual, continue to be central tenets of many belief systems today. And tens of thousands of years ago, they may have been one of the foundational factors in the evolution of many religions. As our brains became more complex, developed heightened self-consciousness and temporal awareness, and started dreaming of our deceased relatives, it's likely we perceived those dreams as visits from a place beyond death. Over millennia, such beliefs manifested into hundreds of different interpretations of the afterlife. And no matter your beliefs, the heightened frequency of dreams we have about our loved ones when we lose them can be an important part of the grieving process. Because, again, dreams help us make sense of the world as we experience it when we are awake. During our conversation with Roger, he said something profoundly beautiful about the cross-cultural significance of dreams. One thing I've found is that when people meet, regardless of culture, and share their dreams as they experience them, the commonality they feel is much stronger than the difference. Dreams could bring us together. Dream sharing could break down some of the obstacles to loving one another. The ways science has helped us understand dreaming is captivating. But just as intriguing are the ways dreaming has helped us understand science. Dreams have long been a cornerstone of human culture, influencing major events, inspiring groundbreaking discoveries, and sparking our earliest thoughts about the afterlife. Take Dmitri Mendeleev, for example. Right, the chemist who formulated the periodic table of elements. He famously claimed that, exhausted and sleepless from trying to think up a way to classify the elements, he fell asleep and dreamed up the first version of the table that's so familiar to us today. To quote Mendeleev from his diary, I saw in a dream a table where all the elements fell into place as required. Awakening, I immediately wrote it down on a piece of paper. Another scientist of renown, Niels Bohr, credited his discernment of the structure of atoms to a dream in which he saw planets orbiting around the sun. During subsequent tests, he found that electrons revolve around nuclei in a comparable manner. Then there's Mary Shelley, whose Frankenstein was born from a vivid nightmare during a stormy night, a story that catalyzed the science fiction genre. She described it as a tale that haunted my midnight pillow. In the introduction of her book. The family of Elias Howe, who is most famous for inventing the sewing machine, alleged that the idea for his machine came to him in a dream, in which Elias found himself in a strange country where a savage king demanded he build the machine in 24 hours or face punishment by death. Supposedly, 
The king's warriors in Elias's dream had spears that were pierced near the tips. And when he woke up, Elias applied this design to his real machine and the rest is history. I love that story. That is so cool. In more recent history, Google co-founder Larry Page said in a 2009 commencement speech at the University of Michigan that back in the 90s, he dreamt that he managed to download the entire internet in a format that when he awoke, inspired him to start prototyping and writing algorithms for the search engine we know today. The list goes on. Books like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Twilight, songs like I Can't Get No Satisfaction by the Rolling Stones and Yesterday by the Beatles, movies like The Terminator, discoveries like the chemical structure of benzene and chemical neurotransmission. All these things their creators have claimed were inspired by dreams they had. Many of these ideas changed the course of history and they were facilitated by the cognitive liberty we may not even realize we're experiencing when our prefrontal cortex relaxes during REM sleep. With reduced inhibitory functions and free from the interruptions of everyday life, we dream up epiphanies that spark world-altering discoveries and landmark artistic achievements. You may have heard of lucid dreaming. It's when you're aware that you're dreaming. The idea that you can control your dreams may seem a little science fiction-y. Like many aspects of onurology, research into lucid dreams can be affected by the biases of self-reporting. We're all prone to misremembering or excitably exaggerating our dreams, and that can be a problem when it comes to data collection. We spoke to clinical counselor, teacher, and author, Dr. Leslie Ellis, about this. Dreams are inherently difficult to study because there isn't really any way to study them directly. Even if you hooked someone up to an EEG and you can see their brain waves and you can tell when they're dreaming, you don't have a sense of what their experience is. You can wake them up and ask them, but that's really then taking them out of the dreaming and you'll catch snippets of it, but you won't get a sense of what's, re what's really happened for them. Add to this the pseudoscientific guides which promise, quote, extraordinary lucid dreams in just five steps and movies like Inception, which represent lucid dreams in spectacular but sensationalized ways. And it's easy to be skeptical. But it's good to be skeptical too. That's how we find questions that need answers. Lucid dreams, like all dreams, are understood to take place during REM sleep. The big difference with lucid dreams is, instead of taking the back seat, your prefrontal cortex takes the wheel. This heightened activity might be why some people claim they're able to realize their dreaming and sometimes even control the dream. One of the tent poles of lucid dream research is the scanning hypothesis. The theory that the rapid eye movements which give REM sleep its name could mirror the way you look at things in your dreams. If a bird flies overhead in your dream, for example, your eyes would look up. Scientists propose that if this is accurate, they could give lucid dreamers predetermined directions to look while consciously dreaming. And there's evidence of this working. But the activity observed in certain parts of the brain during some of these studies suggest that the voluntary eye movements took place during micro awakenings, which are brief moments when you're not quite fully asleep and not quite fully awake. If we're to definitively declare lucid dreams a real phenomenon, we need more studies with larger sample sizes and agreed upon standardization. But also to quote Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park, 
your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think whether they should. Are lucid dreams really worth it? Advocates claim they use lucid dreams to avoid sleep disrupting nightmares, but some of the methods they recommend for inducing lucid dreams are centered on deliberately interrupting sleep. We asked Roger about this. Dreaming is one part of our consciousness that we don't train or control, and it's sponta utterly spontaneous. And so why would I want to mess with that? Yeah. It may be the one source of authentic me, right? The things that rise up in my dreams that are authentically mine. Dreams help us consolidate our memories and transform them into new ideas, like those historic breakthroughs and cultural revolutions we just explored. Roger makes a great point. Before trying to control them, we should consider how valuable dreams can be. It is an extraordinary fact, I think, that human beings spontaneously produce imaginative images and scenarios without any will or effort. We've kind of gotten to this idea that the way to solve any problem is to kind of refer it up to the late developing part of the brain that, that does rational stuff. And what I think dreams can offer is an imaginative reconfiguration of our problems and situation to discover perhaps new approaches. So I think that's a great benefit of dreaming. Earlier in this episode of Your Brain On, we mentioned nightmares and how they're often a reflection of the anxieties and stresses we're experiencing in our waking lives. There's something else, something a little more strange that's regularly cited as having an influence on our dreams. Cheese. What's up with that? I wish I could say there was some big conspiracy behind the idea that cheese gives us weird dreams. But one hypothesis is that because more than half of the world's population is lactose intolerant, we're just not very good at digesting dairy. This could alter our digestive process and affect REM sleep, meaning you'll wake up more throughout the night and be more likely to remember your dreams. And cheese is the dairy product that pops up most towards the evening, just before you sleep pizza, fondue, and of course, leftover lasagna, and so on. Antidepressants and other medications can have the same effect. Anything that negatively affects sleep can make it feel like we're having more intense dreams because lighter sleep makes it more likely we'll remember them. Right at the start, we mentioned how REM sleep boosts the production of certain proteins that are crucial for neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity is the brain's ability to reorganize itself by forming new neural connections. This means areas of the brain, like the visual cortex, which is usually responsible for processing visual information from our eyes, can adapt to handle other types of sensory data. For instance, in people who are blind, the visual cortex can start responding to sounds. This flexibility of the brain is both fascinating and complex, and we're still unraveling how it works. But there's an interesting concern here. Considering we spend around eight hours each night without visual input, could our brains begin to prioritize other types of sensory information over visual data? Dr. David Eagleman's defense activation theory suggests an answer. During REM sleep, the visual cortex remains engaged through neurons that are active during dreaming. Eagleman believes that dreams function as a form of sensory simulation to ensure the visual cortex remains primed and doesn't become 
become repurposed for other senses. Eagleman's theory is intriguing and is supported by his research into relationships between neuroplasticity and REM sleep across various species. His studies indicate that species with less neuroplastic brains, which are less capable of adapting, spend less time in REM sleep. This suggests that dreaming is a protective mechanism for species like humans who have highly neuroplastic brains to maintain the functionality of their visual cortex. Dr. Eagleman also points out that people with less flexible brains might not need to dream as much. This seems to be true because as we get older and our brains aren't as flexible, we tend to dream less. This theory that dreaming is a way to protect our brain's ability to see and process visual information is something we'll keep an eye on. It could really change how we understand dreams and our brain's power to adapt. So we've talked about cheese dreams and lucid dreams. How about recurring dreams? We know our dreams can reflect real world concerns and that they can help us process solutions for the problems in our lives. A recurring dream then might suggest that those solutions are getting lost in how we interpret our dreams. We might douse our subconscious concerns with our conscious thoughts or seek meaning in so-called dream dictionaries, which assume everyone thinks the same way. Roger practices an alternative, dream work. Dream work attempts to strip away the narratives our brains create to fill in the gaps of our dreams. While traditional dream interpretation treats dreams as linear stories with single, simple meanings, dream work recognizes that the underlying neuroscience is far more more complicated. It's designed to be part of a larger process of self-reflection, not a conclusive standalone answer. In Roger's words, We take them seriously, but not literally. The ego is a story-making mechanism. It makes up stories in the moment, like, he doesn't like me, that person who just walked in the room has it in for me, that kind of story. Rogers told us about a recurrent dream he had in which he stood in front of a class and didn't know what he was supposed to be teaching and how something someone told him in real life enabled him to escape the recurrent dream. I come into class and the students are there. I've forgotten what the subject is. Like, what am I supposed to teach? I try to throw something out to the students to let them know that I don't know what's going on and hope that from their response, I'll figure out that this is a class in romantic poetry or something. And um, the students don't answer. Then they start to wander away. They kind of leave the room, you know, it's a terrible feeling. So, um, I used to have that over and over. One day that I was reciting that dream, the person I was working with at the time said, what makes you think you're the teacher? <laughs> I said, of course I'm the teacher. I've been teaching for 25 years at that time. What are you, what are you talking about? Of course I'm the teacher. And he says, are you sure you're the teacher? <laughs> Does anyone say you're the teacher? You see, he's deconstructing the story. Yeah. So I, I, I really thought about that. And I thought about how often in my life I stand in relation to others at that time, even today, I guess, kind of as a teacher, like that's a role, I assume. Mm -hmm. I really felt deeply, well, what would it be like to go through life not assuming that? Then I'd be more vulnerable. I wouldn't have a role. A few weeks later, I had a dream. I, I walked into the classroom and I just, I didn't know what the class was. So I just sat there with my fellow students. Wow. And then the teacher came in. Wow. <laughs>
So that I never had that other dream again. Amazing. Yeah. That's fantastic. This has been an amazing conversation. Where do you see the future of our understanding of dreams and dream research heading? And what are your hopes specifically as far as our methodologies are concerned? I'm curious about this clarifying the core distinction of feeling and reactivity and perhaps finding correlates that are measurable. All we're really doing is saying, what did you experience when you dreamed? And of course, it's hard to get at that because as soon as we, even in the dream, we make up a story. We often hear people say, oh, I had a weird dream last night, by which they mean weird by Western storytelling convention. They're already judging the dream, but a dream really isn't a story. I say a dream is a poem disguised as a story, by which I mean it has moments of intense feeling and then stories kind of swirl around it and eventually form, but the story comes second. The really important moment could be just a single moment of encounter. Just like in life, we tell stories, but the, and stories are important, but there are certain moments where time stops and there's a tremendous depth of feeling, and I think dreams can offer us that possibility. So one of the things you've been emphasizing is sort of the civilizational or cultural uses of dreams. And as our societies change, we can make more use of dreams for creativity. We don't have to be so threatened as we did. We briefly heard from clinical counselor, teacher, and author Dr. Leslie Ellis earlier in the show. Leslie also uses dream work as a therapeutic tool. Evolutionarily, it's not functional to be paralyzed in, in lieu of the predators out there for millions of years. Yet it's something that was so important for a brain that it, it became part of our life, one third of our life. And at the center of it is a, this little segment where the brain is functioning and it's creating stories. That's just remarkable. Of course, there's functionality in that. Of course, there's some story behind it beyond the obvious story of the dreams. So it makes sense evolutionarily, scientifically, that this has a profound function, dream therapy and things of that nature. So tell us, if you don't mind, from your perspective, what are the salient big things that, that you learned about functionality of dreams? It's such a good question, why we dream. And, and honestly, a lot of very dedicated researchers have wrestled with because dreams are inherently difficult to study because there isn't really any way to study them directly. Even if you hooked someone up to an EEG and you can see their brain waves and you can tell when they're dreaming, you don't have a sense of what their experience is. You can wake them up and ask them, but that's really then taking them out of the dreaming and you'll catch snippets of it, but you won't get a sense of what's, re what's really happened for them. We can only get at what's happening in dreaming indirectly and maybe by what shifts for people when they've had dreams, but we all dream roughly 90 minutes every night. We don't remember more than a fraction of those dreams because most of the time during the dreaming sleep, the REM sleep, which is the most dream-rich sleep, the part of our brain that records memories is very, it's not completely switched off, but it's mostly switched off. And we have the limbic system, our emotional brain is very online. Our ability to visualize is still available. We can't move, as you suggested. We haven't got an ability to move. So it's a very active but altered state. Dreaming always has an emotional component. Emotions are what trigger the content of dreaming. And because our, our dreaming brain isn't really able to articulate in words or numbers, but only really has images to work with, it's giving us a picture of what's important. Emotions are tagging what's important. So whatever gets a rise out of us is going to be the thing we dream about. It's why we often have movie stars or episodes from high school show up 
because those are intensely emotional times. And so our dreaming brain will find the associations in our history, in um, the things we've seen, maybe things we don't even consciously remember, and put this new experience together with all of that. With trauma, this process gets disrupted and the memories don't get laid down in long-term memory. They feel current because the dreamers are not able to process the emotions, the intense fear, because actually the physiological response kind of interrupts it. And dreams can be so intense that the person wakes up. And then the dreaming never really finishes its job of putting those dreams into long-term memory and attenuating the emotion in the process. It's like the emotion does its job and then it goes away. But in uh, recurrent nightmares with people who've had severe trauma, this process gets interrupted and then the memory doesn't become a memory. It feels current. Uh, so, so what does dream analysis and therapy look like? When does a dream therapist come into play and how do you communicate with someone who has dreams that comes from a place of some psychosocial disruption that may result in all these dreams? There's so many different approaches to dreams. So it's very hard to generalize, but I always just simply listen to the dream. I don't interpret dreams, actually. I don't give them a meaning for their dream. I invite them to experience it. I come from a person-centered approach to therapy, so it is completely non-directive. Aside from dream work, it's partly just a philosophically, I don't believe that I have more knowledge or a better idea of what a person should do than they do. That's really a shift in the way dream work is done, not just for me, but for, I think the vast majority of modern dream work is experiential. And I think that's why people think of dream work as complicated or that you have to have special knowledge because the initial enterprise of psychotherapy started with dreams and with Freud and Jung and their particular way that I'll do all this and I'll tell you what your dream means. That can be really off-putting, especially since a lot of their ideas are outdated. The idea that we can tell somebody what their dream means is actually considered unethical by the International Association for the Study of Dreams. You don't have any way of knowing what someone else's dream means because what a picture means to them is going to be so individual. However, what if someone's dream material is really obviously linked to something in their life and that, you know, if you can really see that it's clearly connected to a trauma, for example. Yes, but if they haven't made that link themselves, I don't want to make it for them because usually that means they're just not quite ready. The dreams with people that have trauma, that have the recurrent dreams that are typical of post-traumatic stress, those dreams are unique in that they actually represent the event more literally. And that's actually a sign that the trauma hasn't been processed, is that the dream is literal. If they're able to stay with it, then we'll go into that material. And I always get them to imagine it forward. Imagery rehearsal therapy uses this, but it was originally an idea from Jung. He called it dreaming the dream onward and active imagination. So entering into the dream and imagining then it goes forward. IRT is a version of that. The impact of it is quite profound. Usually the PTSD symptoms in most of the studies I've looked at, including mine, they reduce by about half. It helps with the nightmares as well as the daytime symptoms. Something that's come up several times throughout this episode is dreams can be incredibly therapeutic. They can show us new ways of looking at things which amazingly can sometimes seem more logical than the perspectives we create with our waking thoughts. 
And that's why it's so compelling to think that we are the closest we've ever been to turning our dreams into pictures. Generative image engines powered by artificial intelligence models can produce dreamlike pictures in seconds. It's not a direct conversion, but the representations these tools create can turn ephemeral dreams into permanent memories. Like the photos you take in real life, they can be snapshots which transport you back to something your brain was processing during REM sleep. REM sleep, after all, is when our brains consolidate our thoughts and help us make sense of everything we experience. So getting a good night's sleep each night is absolutely essential. It's vital for your mental and physical health and gives you the cognition, energy, and focus to, well, chase your dreams. This has been Your Brain on Dreams. We've been your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. Thank you for listening and keep dreaming.